here. I'm telling you. No matter how good it is here, it ain't, it ain't better. It's going to be better in the Lord's house. I can't wait. All right, we're continuing in Psalms. We're continuing in Psalms. We're in Psalm 51 this week. We'll also be in 2 Samuel 12. So if you want to get a finger in each of those spots or whatever you do to mark those spots, Psalm 51, 2 Samuel 12. If you're a note taker, that link right there will take you to the notes and you can email those to yourself when we're done. And we are on the second half of a month-long challenge to read through the Psalms in a month. Read through the Psalms in a month. Uh, that link right there will take you to a, a link that just breaks it down by day. Um, and we're going to try to read through the entire book of Psalms this month. Hopefully many of you are participating in that. And if you have not started, then just jump in today. Because the best time to plant a tree was 30 years ago, and the next best time is today. So start today if you haven't. And you'll be blessed by it, I do believe. It's definitely speaking to my heart. So we're in the Psalms. We've been in there for a few weeks. Um, today we'll be in Psalm 51, a very well-known psalm for, for the most part. A lot of people have heard this psalm, read this psalm, maybe even heard sermons or messages on this psalm. It's a, it's a big one. It's a big one. The book of Psalms is just is Telhelim in the Hebrew. It just means the book of praises. This book teaches us how to worship even though we are in a sin-filled world. And all the things that that means to be in a sin-filled world and to be a sin-filled being at the same time. And it teaches us how to interact with the divine in a way that we really wouldn't come up with on our own. Hundreds and hundreds of years of teaching and training how to praise the Lord and it just teaches us how to do that. So we're spending some time here in the Psalms. Today we're in Psalm 51 which is, is also a penitential psalm. We looked at Psalm 130. Psalm 51 is also a penitential psalm. That just means a psalm of repentance. That's the main underlying theme of that. And that is for sure the main thing we're looking at today. Repentance. What does that mean? Why does it matter? Looking at repentance this morning. So Psalm 6, Psalm 32, Psalm 51, Psalm 102, Psalm 130, and Psalm 143 are the seven penitential psalms. These are Psalms that have been used a lot throughout the history of the church. Origin of Alexandria, who lived from 185 A.D. to 254 A.D. Uh, Augustine, who lived from 354 A.D. to 430 A.D. Both of these church fathers promoted these penitential psalms, including Psalm 51, as, for liturgical use. In other words, stand in front of the church and recite these together. Right? These, these are, these are well-known psalms. They've been used a lot. They've been used for confession of sin and repentance for just about as long as the church has existed, pretty much, in, in an official capacity, not just in a, on an individual basis. So Psalm 51, some people call it the sinner's guide. That's where we'll be today, and we're looking at poor old David today. He just, he messed up, to say the least. Let's read this psalm together, and let's get into David, and we'll feel a little bit better about ourselves, maybe. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, Blot out my rebellion. Wash away my guilt. Cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Verse 6. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self, and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop, 
and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and give me a willing spirit. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, the God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. God, you will not despise a broken and humbled heart. And your good pleasure cause Zion to prosper. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Psalm 51. Beautiful psalm. David gets real, 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 real fast. Real transparent, real honest before the Lord. But you'll notice in your, in your copy of the word, at the top of that psalm, it probably says something to this effect. For the choir director, a Davidic psalm, it's a, it's a psalm written by David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone to Bathsheba, which for anyone that has any biblical knowledge immediately goes, <clears throat> but you may not know what that story is, so we're not going to assume today, or maybe you haven't heard it in a long time. So we'll just refresh and make sure we're all at the same point when we look at this psalm today. So David, you probably know, was the little shepherd boy, right? He was the eighth son, the youngest son of a man named Jesse. He was a nobody as a young teenager. And such a nobody that when Nathan came by looking for the next king because Saul was on his way out because Saul had done some Saul things. Nathan was looking for his next king and Jesse didn't even mention David as a possibility. He goes through all of his sons and he goes, you got anybody else? He's like, oh yeah. Got old David out there tending the flock, but he ain't nothing. He's just a shepherd. I mean, that's the way I would have heard what David's dad said, but it's not exactly what he said, but that's the way I would have heard it. He's out there tending sheep, and, 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 and Nathan says, that's him, and anoints him king to be the next king until after Psalm, after, after that dude, Saul, <laughs> I keep saying Solomon, after Saul uh, is no longer alive, then David is going to be the next king. So he's the king in waiting. This is the same David. That after that goes on to kill Goliath, right? Slay the giant. Well, I mean, it's everybody in the world just about knows that story. We say it all the time, David versus Goliath. Okay, I won't chase that rabbit, but we really misuse that term really badly. But anyway, he kills Goliath. He goes on to be a war hero. The king of, I mean, the, the dude of dudes, the man amongst boys. He, I mean... Saul kills his thousands, but David kills his tens of thousands, they sing in Israel. He is a hero for the nation. And then things go sour between him and Saul. As he's waiting to be the next king, and Saul knows that, Saul becomes jealous of him. He becomes envious of him. And we've talked many a times how dangerous envy and jealousy is. And it leads Saul to do some crazy things. The spirit of the Lord is taken from him. That means the fellowship is broken. Saul is overtaken 
by evil, and he wants to kill David. So David has to flee from Saul. And that's where we looked at Psalm 34. David's on the run from Saul because he doesn't want to have to kill him. So his choices are kill him or run from him. So he runs from him. But where we're picking up today is where David is now well established. Saul is gone. David is the king. And as David has become king, he is kicking tail end. I mean, he's kicking tail end and taking names. Israel is spreading. They're, they're, they're defeating Philistines. They're defeating their enemies. Things are going well, too well for David. And David gets a little lackadaisical in his commitment to doing what kings are supposed to do. Where we're picking up this story is about 1,000 B.C. David became the, the, the king over all of Israel in 1,003 B.C., but I always say 1,000 because that's easier to remember. 1,000 B.C. So about 3,000 years ago, is where we're picking up this story. David is the man. His throne is established, and he is the man. So where we're picking it up today is at a time when David should be out fighting with his men. That's what kings were doing at this point in time when he sends his army out. They go out with him, but he doesn't. He doesn't do that. He doesn't go out and do what he's supposed to do. He has a little bit of idle time. His thumbs are probably doing this a little too much. And I don't know about you, but sometimes when I get idle, I make bad decisions. Right? Uh, you've probably heard that saying, idle hands are the, see, we, we know. It's because of stories like this. We've learned that through the years. And so David's there, and he hangs back. His men are out fighting. He's hanging back, and he's chilling. He's on the rooftop of his palace, and he sees a beautiful woman bathing from the rooftop of his palace. Now, interestingly, Scripture is completely silent about Bathsheba, the woman that he sees. It doesn't say whether she was being seen on purpose or not. It doesn't say whether she was enticing David or not. It doesn't say anything about that because it's not the point. It's not the point. The point is what takes place next, regardless of what Bathsheba was doing it for, and it doesn't say she is or she was, it doesn't matter. This is on David. What takes place after this? So he finds out who she is. He asks around. He finds out who she is. And he finds out that she is this woman Bathsheba. She is the daughter of one of his elite warriors. One of his special forces. One of his men that is in the top echelon of the army of Israel. And she's married. She's the wife of one of his elite warriors. One of his special forces. I mean, you know. Like, like we pictured it, like SEAL Team 6, like Navy SEALs, like the dudes that you send out to get stuff done. She is the daughter of one of these guys and the wife of one of these guys. She is married, which means she is 100% off limits to him, period. Not to mention the fact that David's already married with multiple wives at this point. But... He's the man. He's the king. And he's got time on his hands. And by golly, Miss Molly, he can have whatever he wants. That's where David had crept to. Spiritually, emotionally, mentally, that's where he had gotten to. He had gone from this guy that flees for months and months and months to not kill Saul who was trying to kill him to now he's the guy who finds out this, this beautiful woman 
is the daughter of one of his right-hand men and the wife of one of his right-hand men and still says, no, I'm the king. I can have what I want. I can do what I want. And at this point in the story, most of us go, how could David do such a thing? I mean, that's what I've done most of the times I've heard this story in my life. I still fight that urge. How could David do such a thing? I mean, God had shown up for him time after time after time after time. How could David do such a thing? I say to you, au contraire, mon frère. On the contrary, brother, this is what we do. This is what we do. David ain't different than you or me. He had a different pedestal. He had a lot bigger spotlight. But this is what we do. Regardless of how many times God has shown up for us, no matter what he has done, this is what we do. Hey, they can't tell me what I can do. Hey, she can't tell me who I can be friends with. Hey, he's not the boss of me. Hey, I tell you what. Right? We rationalize why our sin is okay. And how it's not really hurting anyone. But as we'll see later, as we get through this message today, there's always someone that sin hurts. Always. So of course, of course, this story couldn't go any other way. Of course, David brings in Bathsheba, sleeps with her, and she gets pregnant. Of course. And then long story short, David tries this elaborate and ridiculous cover-up scheme with Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, and it doesn't work. And it doesn't work because, interestingly, Uriah the Hittite is a man of high, high integrity. A much higher integrity than his King David at the time. And he won't do it. He won't, he won't go through with the opportunity David gives him to cover up what has taken place. So the cover-up doesn't work. So then David, in his infinite wisdom, essentially sends Uriah to the front of the lines. Remember, remember battle's taking place at this point in time. They're out fighting their enemy. And, th and this ain't, you know, this is back when fighting was brutal, okay? Brutal. They're out there fighting. To be sent to the front of the lines was basically a death sentence if you were at the front. So he does that. He's killed in battle. And then, <laughs> to cover up his sin, plays the good guy. Brings in poor Bathsheba, this poor widowed woman. He brings her into the palace and takes care of her. Looks like the good guy. In the situation. What a deal. And the son is born to him and to Bathsheba from what has taken place. And then Nathan, the pesky prophet of God, shows up. And God's given Nathan the knowledge of what's taking place. And Nathan comes up to David with this knowledge unbeknownst to David. And think about this. When he comes up to him to share this story he's about to tell him, it's about a year this whole thing is taking place. We read it and think it, it was like this. He saw her. He brought her in. This took time. He slept with her. And the baby's already been born. So it's almost been a year, this whole process that it has taken. These few verses. And then Nathan comes in and tells him a little story. He says, hey, King David, there were two dudes. Rich dude and a poor dude. The rich dude had a whole bunch of stuff. Bunch of livestock, all he needed, everything was good. This poor dude 
He had one little bitty old lamb. He loved this lamb. He took care of this lamb. He cradled this lamb. He even brought this lamb into his bed and slept with this lamb, which many of you right now are going, oh. You picture that, can't you? Because you do that. You sleep with your pets. Not this guy. <laughs> I love him. But man, I got I to gotta sleep. But, th- but this poor guy, this poor dude, he, he sleeps with his lamb. He loves this little lamb, this one little lamb he has. And then Nathan's telling the story. He says, and then a visitor comes into town. He comes to the rich dude's house. And the rich dude is supposed to provide for this visitor, right? He just can't bring himself to, to, to slaughter one of his livestock. I mean, he wouldn't even miss it, but he wouldn't do it. Instead, he goes and takes this beloved little lamb of the poor guy. He takes it from him. When he's got plenty and this guy has nothing, he takes it from him. And he slaughters it and uses that to provide a feast for this visitor. That's the story that David tells Nathan. And right after this story is where we're going to pick it up today. Literally, Nathan has just finished telling this story to David. If you look in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 5, we get David's reaction. David was infuriated with the man and said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. Because he has done this thing and shows no pity. He must pay four lambs for that lamb. And then Nathan, in one of the coolest verses of the entire Bible, verse 7, Nathan replied to David, You are the man. At least that's how I think Nathan said it. I don't know how he said it. But I I don't think he said, David, you're the guy. I think he said, David... You're the man. You're the rich guy in the story. You're the man. You couldn't fathom how he could do that to a lamb. You're the man. You're the guy I'm talking about. And Nathan goes on. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that was not enough, I would have given you even more. Verse 9. Why then have you despised the command of the Lord by doing what I consider evil? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife as your own wife. You murdered him with the Ammonite's sword. David, you have... Not that there's ever an excuse for sin, but you have no excuse at all whatsoever. I have given you everything and then some. And if you needed more, I'd have given you more. Verse 10. Now, therefore, because of all that, still Nathan talking, the sword will never leave your house because you despise me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own wife. He goes on in verse 11. This is what the Lord says. I'm going to bring disaster On you from your own family. I will take your wives and give them to another before your very eyes, and he will sleep with them publicly. You acted in secret, but I will do this before all Israel in broad daylight, Nathan says, speaking for God. God ain't playing around. Because because God doesn't play around about sin. We do, 
we dabble, we rationalize, we convince ourselves it's okay and not that big a deal, but God considers it a big deal to do what is evil in his sight. And then the next verse, we just finished in verse 12, the next verse, you wonder how God can call David a man after his own heart? This is how. David shows his true character in this next statement. Verse 13, David responded to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. You might, you might wonder, why didn't God just kill David? Why was David not punished with death? He, he had just said the guy in the story deserved to die. Why wasn't, he, why wasn't he killed? Adultery and murder were both sufficient cause for the execution of even a king, according to Exodus 21.12 and Leviticus 20.10. The answer surely lies in J David's genuine and contrite repentance. He, he, he shows genuine repentance. David's sin was heinous in every aspect of what that word means. But the grace of God was and still is more than sufficient to forgive and restore him. As, David, as Nathan could testify to him in this moment. And yet, church, because that's one way that we rationalize our sin, right? Well, God will forgive me. Yeah. If you truly repent, he will. But David was restored to fellowship with his God, which is a big deal. But the impact of his sin, it remained. And it would continue to work its sorrow and its grief and its destruction and its pain in the nation of Israel as well as in David's personal life. Nathan continues after David says, I have sinned against the Lord. Then Nathan replied to David, the Lord has taken away your sin. <laughs> the Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. However, because you have treated the Lord with such contempt in this matter, the son born to you will die. The son that had just been born to he and Bathsheba. Then Nathan went home. See, the consequences of David's sin, once brought before him, they began immediately. And they didn't stop. It goes on. The baby that Bathsheba was carrying dies at about a week old. A few years later, David's daughter, Tamar, was raped by her half-brother, Amnon, who was then murdered by Tamar's full brother, Absalom. Absalom then fled to Geshur and stayed with his maternal grandfather for three years, so separated from his dad, didn't see him at all, for three years. And then Absalom later comes back to Israel and tries to usurp his father, take over the crown himself. And eventually went after David and tried to kill him while stealing David's wives and violating them publicly. No, we don't ever talk about that part of the story and I don't know why. It's like, well, David repented and everything was fine. Nope. 
That ain't what happened. It literally tore the nation in two. Literally tore the nation in two. It had quite the effect on his life, those around him, and his nation that he was supposed to be the benevolent king of. This is all the background for this Psalm 51. And how does David start this Psalm? The way you and I ought to start our communication with God every time in some form or fashion. Be gracious to me, God. God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, that's how he starts out communicating with the creator of the universe. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love. The word there is hesed. Y'all know that's my favorite love, favorite word for God's love in the Old Testament. I love that word, hesed. His loving kindness, his faithful, loyal love. We say it several ways in English, but it's hesed. It's one word in the Hebrew. It says it all. According to your abundant, abundant compassion, you'll overcome. Right? Proverbs 19, 22. What is desirable in a man? It's his kindness. Same word. Nehemiah 9, 19. You do not abandon them in the wilderness because of your great compassion. Yorakum. Same word. Or my favorite part, my favorite place where it talks about this together. Exodus 34. Right after God cuts the stone himself for the, for the Ten Commandments, right after he has done that, for the second time, you know, because Israel got a little impatient the first time and started worshiping a golden calf. So Moses broke the Ten Commandments. He's gone back up, and God has written it on the stone himself the second time. That has just happened right here in Exodus 34. It says, The Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him, him being Moses. In verse 6 it says, Then the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and rich in faithful love, there it is, and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving wrongdoing, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's wrongdoing on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. What was Moses' reaction to God proclaiming this to him in front of him? Immediately, he stood there like this and said, praise the Lord. Nope. Like Danny Torres, our partner in, in, in Bushwick said, if you're happy and, and you know what, tell your face. Right? He bowed down to the ground. <laughs> Notice that there's a physical response when worshiping God. Almost always. Yahweh, Yahweh is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and rich in faithful love. This is God describing himself to Moses so Moses can describe it to Israel. This goes all the way back to the beginning of the nation. This is during the Exodus. Yahweh, Yahweh is a rakum and gracious God. That's the word. Slow to anger and rich in hesed and truth. That, that is the word used right there when God is describing himself. It's rakum here because it's the adjective form of the noun. Rakum. How rich? How rich is God in said and Rakum? Maintaining faithful love, same word, said, to a thousand generations, forgiving wrongdoing, rebellion, and sin. said to a thousand generations, which is a metaphorical way of saying forever. 
We still hadn't had a thousand generations since then. So David is not reminding God that he is... David is not reminding God that God is this, Rekhuman has said, that God has this, that he is this. He's not reminding God. God hadn't forgotten who he is. God knows. He's reminding himself because we need to be reminded of this in our prayers because our feelings, our circumstances, and Satan will constantly lie to us Constantly lie to us, trying to make us believe otherwise. And that's why I love that line in the song that we sang last week for the first time that we're singing at the end of the service today. I love the line in that song. I won't be formed by feelings. I'll hold fast to what is true. My feelings say, how could God forgive me? How could God put up with me? But truth says God is full of his said and whom he is full of faithful love and compassion. Because it ain't about me, it's about who he is. That's what's true about God. He maintains his said for a thousand generations to his children. So with who God is, firmly in David's mind, as he states this in the opening part of this psalm, it goes on who he is. David now goes on to who he is. He's, he's thinking, this is who God is, now this is who I am. In verse 2, he says, end of verse 1, verse 2, Blot out my rebellion, wash away my guilt, and cleanse me from my sin. Blot out my rebellion, wash away my guilt, and cleanse me from my sin. These Hebrew words here go with these words here. Blot out, makah, this is a strong word. It's used many times in Scripture. It's used in Genesis 7-4. Think about this. It's used in Genesis 7-4 in the flood. Seven days from now, I will make it rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and I will wipe off from the face of the earth every living thing I have made. That same word for blot out used right there. That's how far this word means. That's what David's asking. God, blot out my rebellion. Wash. This term here, wash, kabas, 31 times just in Leviticus to describe the washing of something clean. Right? Usually closed after it's touched something defiled or something, something unclean, something unworthy, something unholy. A dead carcass or it's come in contact with a skin disease. And then, and then it's told in Leviticus how to, how to handle these things. You take something like that and you, and you take it from being stained by sin and you make it clean. Because that was the idea of what had taken place. Because what causes death? You can't touch a dead carcass without sin being present because death wouldn't be there if sin wasn't there. And then it says, cleanse me from my sin. 43 times. 43 times this word is used in Leviticus alone. After doing a sacrifice or a ritual washing, it is always stated, if you go look, that it shall be clean. When something has been blotted out and washed by the Lord, it shall be clean. That's what David probably has in mind here, most likely. He would have cared a little bit more about Leviticus than we do. We fall asleep trying to read it. It was the way of living for the Israelites. Lord, wipe away forever my sins. Lord, wash away my guilt. Lord, only you can cleanse me of my heinous sin. Or as Isaiah says in 118, though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be washed as white as snow. Beautiful picture, beautiful imagery. Man, this 
God's word is so cool. It's got so much stuff in it. It's so deep. Speaking of deep, since we're in a poem, skip it forward a few verses, and then it says, David says again, purify me with the hyssop, which is what they use to sprinkle the blood. He's obviously he's talking about sacrifice of blood for sin, because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear your joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. We could spend a month on that verse alone. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. Now, did you notice what David did there? Did you notice what he did? The first time he says it, he says, blot, wash, and clean. And then he says something, and then after it, he goes in reverse order. Clean, wash, and blot. Why do you do that in a poem? Why do you do that in wisdom literature? You're trying to point towards something, right? You're making a point, literally making a point. So what is the point? Well, the point's in between the two. Verse 3. For I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. There's, there's your, a verse for the total depravity of man. This is confession. This is confession. This is confession of the highest order. David is confessing his sinfulness and who he has sinned against. His sin, yes, was against Uriah. And his sin hurt Bathsheba. And his sin hurt his family. And his sin hurt his nation. Millions of people. But his sin was against God and God alone. Because that's what sin is. Like Joseph says, I love this verse. Genesis 39, 9. Joseph says, when, when his master's wife is pursuing him, why well, is it always that? Like, like a theme. It's something we deal with a lot. His master's wife is coming after him, trying to get him to do something he shouldn't do. He said, she says this, No one in this house is greater than I am. He, being his master, has withheld nothing from me except for you, because you're his wife. Because you are his wife. So how could I do such a great evil and sin against my master? Is that what it says in, verse th in chapter 39? No. How could I do this great evil and sin against God? <laughs> Notice, before, where, before David is repenting, notice how he handled his sin, how he thought about his sin. Self-absorbed. Cover my tracks. Only question is mine. How do I cover my tracks? Not, how could I treat God like this? That's the difference in repentance and unrepentance. If we're looking for a line in the sand. Then, it, then in verse 4, be there. The second part of verse 4. He's confessing that God is just in his judgment. His ruling. Whatever he decides is without error. Whatever deci God decides to do will be right and will be best. He should kill David. And if I were God, I would have killed David. And if I was Bathsheba's father I darn sure would kill David just saying judge me if you want to but God doesn't do that and David says whatever you decide will be right but he doesn't do that why because where David started his recom and his cassette God desires repentance from sin 
And this is a heart expressing the recognition of condition, like we've talked about before. A desire to repent, to trust God and God alone for the forgiveness he does not deserve. You don't deserve forgiveness. When your friend wrongs you, your friend doesn't deserve forgiveness. When your kid does something they shouldn't do, he or she does not deserve forgiveness. But we give it to them because without forgiveness, we can't have relationships unless sin is not present. And the last time I checked, sin is still present. I long for the day when sin is not present. We don't even, think about that. That's one reason to be happy about heaven alone. We don't have to forgive anymore. There won't be anything to forgive. Nobody's going to hurt anybody anymore. Or as, or as 1 John 1, 9 says, force loves this verse, I know you do. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice the same language there. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we don't have any sin, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. I don't want to say this because I do this. So I don't want someone to think I'm talking about them individually because I'm not talking about myself. What David is doing here is not this. Lord, forgive me of all my failures. That's how we usually repent. Think about the difference in what David is doing and how flippant we approach our repentance of sin, our ongoing rebellion against God. Verse 6, surely you desire integrity in the inner self and you teach me wisdom from within. Why does God want confession and repentance? Because he wants us to be transformed. And that's the only, that's the best way that an infinite knowing, infinitely powerful God has come up with. Is that he has to allow you to sin, but then provide a way for you to come back to him. Repentance, confession, forgiveness changes us not just our fake outward behavior it changes us on the inside our character is transformed behaviors take care of themselves if our character is formed verse 10 god create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit in me david has remembered who god is he has truly acknowledged confessed and repented of what he has done and now he gets to requests where we usually start God, start me over, he says right here. Start me over with the right heart and the right motives. Make me desire to do right by your strength. Steadfast spirit within me. Verse 10 is kind of the central verse of this psalm. It expresses David's heart. It's David's concern. This is what he knows he needs. A clean heart and a renewed spirit to continue living for God. Because it's going to get a whole lot harder for David for the rest of his physical life. The rest of his life is not going to be easy. But he pretty much does it right after this. He knew that only God could work this miracle in his life. Verse 10 right there. Verse 11, do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me like you did Saul. I saw what that looked like and he went berserk. <laughs> Restore the joy of your salvation. I pray this almost every Sunday. That when we come together, we are restored in the joy of our salvation. And part of that joy is knowing that evil is going to be dealt with. It should also create a fear of Yahweh in our hearts. And then another thankfulness 
that even in that, God has forgiven us. Give me a willing spirit. Sin, what it does is it brings doubt and broken fellowship. The reason why we struggle with our salvation so much is because we sin. If we didn't sin, we wouldn't doubt our salvation. If we didn't sin, we wouldn't wonder where God is. Where's God? God is where he always is, everywhere. He hasn't gone anywhere. But your fellowship gets broken. My fellowship gets broken when I sin. Just like it does when you hurt another human being. It hurts a relationship. There must be repentance and forgiveness. Hopefully repentance. But there must be forgiveness. David needed his joy restored. And ultimately, that comes from knowing forgiveness and knowing his eternal inheritance from God. Knowing that, that his has said endures forever. As Psalm 136 says, I'll go read that this week. Just skip ahead. Psalm 136. It repeats it over and over and over and over. It'll say loving kindness or his faithful love or his loyal love. It'll say something like that, but it's saying his said over and over and over and over because that's how much we have to be reminded of how good God is. Verse 13. Then I will teach you the... I will teach the rebellious your ways, and sinners will return to you. He goes on saying what he will do. David moves from requests now to action. Remembrance of God's character for hope at the beginning. Confession, repentance, request. Do these things in me, God. And now declaration of what he's going to do about what God's going to do in him. I will praise you, I will praise you, I will praise you, I will praise you, and I'll teach others to do the same. That's what David says. I will praise you from here on out, and I'll teach others to do the same. God, create in me a clean heart, and give me a steadfast spirit, and I will praise you no matter what, and I'll teach others to do the same. That's his declaration right here. He finishes with this. Because you don't want the blood of a bull for what I've done, David's saying. There's no provision in the law for animal sacrifice for adultery and murder. Just death. So you don't want a sacrifice of an animal. You want my heart. That's what he says here in these last verses. You're not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. A spirit that recognizes how wretched it is, but God loves you anyway. Wow. So... Finish up with this, because I've gone way too long. I told you I was fired up this morning. Um, baptisms. Whew. Repent and follow Jesus if you never have. And continue to repent. Not for your salvation, for your relationship. Don't think that we can just go on living however we want and God's just sitting back okay with that. He's not. He's not. Just like you're not okay with it when a human being does that to you. Why would God, who actually is righteous in his jealousy, not want us to repent and come back to him? Repentance is what I'm saying, and I'll be done. Repentance is not a one-time thing. It's a one-time thing for salvation. It is a daily ongoing thing for the rest of this physical life in fellowship with the Lord. To come before a holy God, we must come before him with a repentant heart. And David gives us a really good idea of what a repentant heart looks like in Psalm 51. So if you're ever not sure, just go read this psalm. Pray it from your heart. And you'll be in a pretty good spot. 
Lord God, thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you that your said and your Rakam lasts for thousand generations, a thousand generations, God. Thank you that your, that your judgment, your, your punishment for sin, Lord, is so much less comparable to how good you are to your said and to your Rakam. Your, your, your judgment only goes for a couple of generations. Lord, it, it should be the other way around, but it's not because that's how good you are. Lord, teach us to remember that. Teach me to remember that daily, how good you are. Lord, allow that goodness to motivate me and us and this church and the entire church to live a life worthy of that truth and that truth alone. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have anything that you need to do during this time, I'll be here available. Otherwise, let's sing this song.